Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme, I'll be talking to novelist Andrew Hagen about his latest book, The Life and Opinions of Maff the Dog, and of his friend Marilyn Monroe. The voice of the dog began to percolate in my head. I had a little yapping going on. It felt a very personal sound. It connected to voices in my childhood and to a kind of comic, absurdist little inquiring voice that had been there in my head for many years. My first guest today is historian, broadcaster, and chief curator at the Royal Palaces, Lucy Worsley. Those who have a curiosity to see courts and courtiers dissected must bear with the dirt they find. So runs the epigraph to Lucy's book, and those words were written by John Harvey, an insider in the Hanoverian court, which is the subject of her book. Lucy takes as her starting point the King's Grand Staircase in Kensington Palace, whose walls are decorated with painted portraits of 45 royal servants from the 1720s, and she investigates court life above and below stairs, including the dirt, the scandals, the mistresses, the intrigue. He that holds a courtier by the hand, one commentator noted, has a wet eel by the tail. I began by asking Lucy about the inspiration to explore these Georgian lives provided by those portraits on the staircase. When I started working here at Kensington Palace, I would often find myself going up and down this enormous grand staircase in the building called the King's Grand Staircase. And it's a remarkable thing, really, because it's decorated with 45 portraits of different members of the royal household. I believe that they're all real people who lived and worked here at Kensington Palace for George I. But nobody knew who they all were. There were lots of rumours. There were lots of myths. People would say, oh, yes, that's George I's mistress and so on. But I decided one afternoon to sit down and try and work it out from all the different sources that are available for this. And it ended up taking not one afternoon, but four years. And the, the book is, is one of the results. Yes, exactly. Um, as a result of this sort of little bright idea I had one afternoon, I ended up writing a whole book about life at the Georgian court, particularly concentrating on the people below stairs who really knew what was going on. They are, you know, the people, the servants in any institution, the people who are standing watching in the corner, they often have a really unique in- insight into what the great and the good are doing sort of up there in the stratosphere. So that's what drew me to the, the portraits on the stairs, really, the idea that they were people who were witnesses. They were witnesses to the kings and the queens and the goings-on in the Georgian family in the early Georgian period are just amazing. There are babies kidnapped, there are tearful deathbed reconciliations, there's all sorts of drama going on in the royal family that people don't know about because they think that George I, George II are boring and dull and German. So I've tried to do my bit to make people realise just what fascinating characters they are, really. But getting at those lives below stairs is is notoriously difficult, isn't it? I mean, they are the lives that are partly hidden. So how did you how did you get some purchase on them? Yeah, there's a very good point. And a lot of the people who lived at court below stairs, we just don't know that much about them because the, the records don't survive. So um, I had to pick a selection of characters from both above and below stairs to, to write about. So um, I have included Queen Caroline, for example, who I just think is the most underestimated queen in the whole British history. She was very fat, she was very funny, she was a German immigrant, she was interested in philosophy. Uh, She wasn't cut out to be a sort of um, sedate princess sitting in the drawing room being nice to everybody. She found this rather boring. 
And one of the things that have shaped my views of Caroline are the views of her own favourite servants. In particular, one of my characters is uh, George Harvey, the vice chamberlain of the court, who has many vices of his own, not least his sodomy. He was clearly bisexual. He worshipped Caroline. They had an incredibly close relationship. And he was sort of like her gay best friend. They used to spend every morning together and he would entertain her with witty and scholarly conversation. And when she died, he was absolutely heartbroken by it. And as, as was her equerry, Peter Wentworth, another character from below stairs. So part of the reason that I admire her so much is because the people who worked for her really were devoted to her. You open your story on an April night in 1720, which seemed to be a really good place to start because it kind of summed up a lot of what what the problem was really at court with the relationship between George I and the Prince of Wales. Can you say something about about what that what the state of play was on that night? Oh yes, well I, I sort of start at a point when <laughs> there's about to be a, a very rare moment of reconciliation between George I and George II because they hate each other. And this is the key thing about the Georges. They, the fathers all hate the sons. George I hates George II. Later on, George III hates George IV. And the reasons for this are just really intriguing. Um, I think they're partly to do with emotional stuff, psychological stuff. There's the peculiar business of the missing queen. George I's wife is nowhere to be seen in 1717. Where is she? In fact, she has been locked up in a remote German castle for adultery. (laughs) Because in the 1690s, this is George II's mother, uh, she embarked on a very flagrant adulterous relationship with a Swede called Count Konigsmark. And rumour has it that one day he was making his way through the palace corridors to her room when he was set upon by an assassin employed by George I and his body was thrown into the river liner in central Hanover. And after that, she disappeared off the scene and her 11-year-old son, George II, never saw her again, never mentioned her again, as far as we know. And I think that her absence caused a dark cloud to sort of settle onto the father-son relationship, which they were unable to discuss or disperse. But also another reason that set them at loggerheads was politics, because in 1714, what happened was that um, Queen Anne died without any surviving children. And this is despite her attempt to squeeze out an heir to a throne during 17 pregnancies. Ouch, only one child lived to the age of 11 and didn't out of her. So she died, that's the end of the Stuarts. The only Stuarts left are Catholic exiled Stuarts who the Whig Protestant aristocracy don't want. They don't want the Catholic branch of the Stuarts. So they look back up the Stuart family tree, back and back and back, and they find George, um, Charles I's sister had re- reproduced and um, produced the Protestant electors of Dinky Little Hanover. So they get invited, they invite the Hanoverians to become the kings of England. But invited is the key word because this invitation comes with um, limits. They're going to be constitutional monarchs. They don't have absolute power. And the Whig aristocrats and the parliament and the politicians impose restrictions on what they can and can't do. So they can't give peerages to Germans. They can't leave the country without permission, that sort of thing. And so the Hanoverians realise that they can be sacked at any time, basically. And this is quite difficult for them to negotiate. And the other thing that the politicians do to further diminish the power of the royal family is divide and rule. 
And so what they do if you're a politician is you suck up to the king, but if you can't get anywhere, then you try the Prince of Wales instead, because he one day will be king. And this is called the reversionary interest, because what you want is the reversion of the post. And this applies to all kinds of posts at court, not, not just the post of being king. Anybody might um, put themselves in line to get a post that will open up at a future point, and it's called the reversionary interest. And this is something that causes immense trouble between the different generations of the royal family, because the politicians are stirring it up. So what happens in 1717 is that finally all hell breaks loose because of this ridiculous, tiny, ludicrous little quarrel that takes place over the German inability to speak English properly. There's a, a quarrel that happens um, between the future George II and the Duke of Newcastle. George II says to the Duke of Newcastle, you rascal, I will find you. And he wanted to find him to give him a peace of mind. He felt that he'd behaved badly. He wanted to have a but what the Duke of Newcastle heard was, you rascal, I will fight you. And this is the German accent of George II being not understood. And the Duke of Newcastle was affronted. He said, I've been, I've been challenged to a duel. This is a terrible breach of etiquette. And he went running off to George I and he said, mm, your son challenged me to a duel. George I took the side of the Duke of Newcastle and he expelled the prince from the royal palace. Not only did he expel the Prince of Wales. He also expelled his wife, the lovely um, Caroline, and even worse, he kept their children behind as hostages for future good behaviour. So it's an emotion, it's a personal tragedy for Princess Caroline, really, to have her children taken from her, and it's a political calamity as well, because now the king and the prince are not on speaking terms. And so what happens in, in the opening part of the courtiers is that we pick up the story and Caroline and her husband, the future George II, have to grit their teeth and they're going to go to court, they're going to put a brave face on it, they're going to try and make up this quarrel that they've had with the king, but it's not really, well, I'm giving away what happens here, it's not really going to work, they're going to die still, still estranged. Mm. To sort of put it in modern parlance, the Hanoverians have got a bit of a, a PR challenge on their hands, haven't they? That, as you say, this sort of minor league German ro royalty who are suddenly cast into the limelight running England. And they don't speak English. They've got these funny German ways. They're hankering after long holidays in Germany. How did they attempt to adapt to this new challenge that was before them? <laughs> Yes, part of the reason that the Hanoverians have always had a dreadful press was that they weren't entirely welcome. There were always English people who felt that the Stuart, Catholic Stuarts, would have been a better bet. Who are these people? What are they doing here? They, they appeared to be very foreign. Actually, if you think about it, they did a very good job, the Hanoverians did. They got us through from 1714 into the 19th century, through the Industrial Revolution, through all the colonies and the empires and everything. Without the French Revolution, there was no bloodbath, there was no classicalism, the closest there was was the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. They actually did a reasonable job, and yet people have just forgotten about them. And that's always because I think the English have tried to minimise their input, they've laughed at them, they've said that they were German and weird and not worth taking seriously. So, you can see the sort of problem that the Hanoverians faced. They had to win over a whole new country which didn't really want them to be there. And to be honest, they made many mistakes along the way. They had too many Germans at court who formed sort of inner clique and this upset the English courtiers who were sort of outside the clique. But to give her the credit for it, it was Princess Caroline, in particular the future Queen Caroline, who understood PR, best of the whole of the new royal family. And she was warm and welcoming, almost to a fault. She stood there night after night in the drawing room, welcoming the English courtiers and smoothing them and sort of fluffing them and encouraging them to, to take the Hanoverian dynasty seriously. And she deserves enormous credit for that. 
particularly because she would have preferred to be doing something rather more serious with her time. She would have been preferred to have been reading her books or studying or talking about philosophy. But she sacrificed herself, really, to these very turgid social occasions, which were all about winning over power for her husband's dynasty. You refer to the early 18th century as the last great gasp of court life. And I suppose, like the end phase of many things, it was it was becoming sort of hidebound and and rather stultifying. So the forms were all still there, but they were becoming more and more empty forms, I suppose. You've got to pity court historians, really, because their institution that they study is basically in decline from Henry VIII to Queen Victoria. <laughs> it kind of goes down and down and down in importance with sort of little jiggles, like George II revives the whole institution a little bit. But basically, it's on its way down. And by the 18th century, there are other spheres of influence. There's the parliament, there's the city. People aren't exclusively seeking power at court. There are other arenas for politics to be played out with. But they still do come. They're still worth doing. So Walpole, the Prime Minister, he spends an awful lot of time at court cultivating the ear of the of the King and the Queen. He knew that Caroline was very influential politically with, with George II. So it does still matter at this time. But you're right, it is sort of becoming slowly ossified. And by the after Queen Caroline's death, in 1737. She was the kind of motor that kept the court's social life going. After her death, George II didn't host parties in the same way, and he became notably reclusive. And everybody began to sort of think that he'd he sort of vanished, really. He wasn't holding parties, he wasn't entertaining people at court. This sort of drew mixed reactions because some people thought the king's not doing his job. He's not, he should be. He should be having a glittering, sparkling Louis XIV type monarchy for the nation. But other people, and this is very British, other people were thinking, hmm, we quite like having a low-key king like this. He's obviously not wasting our money too much. We, we, we don't mind having sort of workman-like king who sits in his palace and doesn't see many people. Now tell me what court life was like specifically for women. You describe them at the beginning of the book as trussed up. Hmm. and coloured. And I suppose that's that's not just in a literal sense, that's sort of also a metaphorical kind of containment of their freedom of movement. Yes, if you were a female courtier, you had to wear the court uniform, which is a dress called a mantua. Now, this is one of those dresses that's enormously wide. It's worn over a hooped whalebone cage, and it goes out and out and out to the sides. Not forwards and backwards, that's Victorian, the circular dress, the crinoline is Victorian, but it, it goes out um, to each side of you. So you can't walk through a doorway unless it's a palace doorway, otherwise you have to sort of turn and go through sideways. And these dresses were enormously heavy. I've worn one, it really is exhausting. First of all, you put on your ship, then your stays, then this big sort of cage of whalebone goes over you, that weighs about 10 pounds. Then you put your dress on and that weighs another 10 pounds because the dresses are woven really richly with, with metallic threads. The sort of the quality of the dresses not lies not in the cut but in the material itself. It's very, very richly woven. And sometimes when a mantua is no longer wanted for use, they would melt it down so they could reuse the silver again afterwards. You, with the mantua you had to wear your, your ruffles, your lace ruffles at the sleeves, your forearms were exposed and the way that you position them and hold your fan, that's all dreadfully important. There's a big erogenous zone, the um, the forearm is, and it has to be displayed to advantage and there are books that tell you how to do this. Then you also have to stand correctly. If you're at court, you must never ever cross your arms. This is a crime. Your dancing master will train you in this before you turn up. When you're in the presence of the king or queen, you never sit. If you want to leave the presence, you have to curtsy three times. Well, first you have to ask for permission, then you curtsy three times and you back out of the room. 
Now, people who see the mantras that we've got on display here at Kensington Palace, they always ask, how did they go to the loo? Because in, in such an enormous skirt, you, it's kind of hard to imagine. There is a sneaky answer to this. Firstly, they weren't wearing underpants or knickers. These haven't been invented yet. They're a, they're a 19th century thing. And secondly, they had these kind of devices called a bois de loup, which looks like a gravy boat. So what the ladies would do is just slip it up their skirts and nobody knew what they were up to. You were supposed to retire to the anti-room to do this. Didn't always happen. There are accounts of the French ambassador's wife just going to the loo in front of everybody and not minding about it. But officially, you're supposed to leave the drawing room, go to the anti-room. But you had to ask permission to do this. And once one of Queen Caroline's ladies didn't get permission to go, she was defeated by a bursting bladder. And a humiliating pool of urine crept out from under her skirts. And this is the contemporary quotation. It threatened the shoes of bystanders. (laughs) It just shows you what a strange world it was at court where people had to follow the rules to such an extent that they got confronted with total humiliation and pain. And if you were a, if you were a man, having a mistress was was de rigueur, really. And if you're a woman, it was a dangerous thing, wasn't it? To um, it was it was a much more risky venture to be involved in adultery. The, the position of mistress at the Georgian court is ambivalent, really. Firstly, it's well established and accepted. When George II gets his longtime mistress Henrietta Howard, everyone's quite pleased. They say, "Oh, good, he's got an English mistress. At least she will improve his English language skills." But Henrietta found the position degrading and arduous. She wasn't happy. She didn't like it. She didn't relish it. Unlike some other women who were in the position of mistress, she didn't really use it to get wealth and influences. She wasn't flogging peerages like some of them did. And the reason that she stuck with it was because she was married to a violent alcoholic man, Charles Howard, at court. And at court alone, she was protected from him by the palace walls. So that's why she stuck with it for such a long time. But in some ways, she was atypical of a royal mistress because she had so little sort of zoom and panache about her. Some of the other ones were were much more feisty. And you mustn't think of them just as sexual playthings. That's a misconception. They were there to entertain and to give advice, actually. I mean, Charles II, people say, the Merry Monarch, famous for having the 13 mistresses or whatever it was. Surely that's a misogynist thing to do. Actually, no, he took women seriously and he liked to chat with them and to get their views on things, quite unlike contemporaries who maybe remained more faithful to their wives, but treated them as animals. And yet, despite all this, there's something actually quite touching by the end about the the marriage of George II and Caroline, isn't it? It survives through all sorts of vicissitudes. And towards the end, there are actual signs of deep affection on both sides. Oh, George II and Caroline, it's such a romantic story. It's just heartbreaking. George II had had his mistress Henrietta for more than 20 years. And Caroline always pretended not to mind about this. She put it about that she minded the king's infidelity no more than his going to the closed stool, for example, going to the toilet. It's just something that princes did. But she actually loved him, really. Much more than he deserved, in my opinion. And later on in his life, when she fell ill in 1737, she got this terrible illness. He realised the value of the woman who'd been by his side all along, and he devoted himself to her care. Now, if you read their early love letters from their from their courtship, he was passionate about her. He said that he would throw himself at his princess's feet. He was a great writer of love letters, was George II. The time as king 
blunted, bored, annoyed him. He, he, he couldn't keep up this level of devotion to his wife. But when it really mattered, he came back to her. And after she died, it was really like a light went out. I mean, lights did literally go out. And then metaphorically, it was the life seemed to go out of the court, didn't it? Yes, you're right. Once, once Caroline had died, so many of her servants were destroyed by the event. Peter Wentworth, for example, who'd been her equerry, only she had stopped him from um, becoming an alcoholic. He always struggled with, with drinking. He was terribly shy. She shattered his shyness, but after her death, he couldn't go on. He died of, he died of alcoholism. And, and many of the other of her servants were, were devastated by her loss, as was the king. And he sort of retired from social life. Then the palace was closed up. In fact, her room was left untouched 20 years later. You could still see the wood that had been laid on that final morning on her fireplace. The sparkle went out of things. Although he soldiered on for another 23 years as king, it was kind of the end of the high life at Kensington Palace. Did you feel closer to the Georgians as a result of writing this? Did the process of researching this book kind of warm them up, humanise them, bring them to life in a way that they hadn't been for you beforehand? Yes, definitely. Everybody in this book, I think, suffered in one way or another. And people have this idea that life at court, life in a palace is is wonderful and glamorous and sparkling and brilliant. And you see these little girls, they come around the palace, they're dressed up in their pink dresses, they're wearing their little tiaras. And you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a princess. Oh, that's such a wrong thing to think. I mean, I think it's in many ways... The court is a gilded cage. The people caught in the cage, particularly the women, really suffer for it. They have a life that's superficially very luxurious and glamorous, but actually they lack a lot of freedom, ability to develop normal relationships. They really pay a high price for their high status. So I see them all as sort of victims of a machine. I feel a great sense of empathy and sympathy for all of these courtiers in my book. Lucy Worsley. Courtiers. The Secret History of Kensington Palace is out now in hardback. My next guest is novelist and essayist Andrew O'Hagan, the narrator of whose latest novel is a dog. Not just any dog, but Maff the Maltese Terrier, given to Marilyn Monroe by Frank Sinatra in 1960. Maff accompanies Marilyn for the rest of her short life, recording their adventures and reflecting philosophically on the changing world around them. Maff turns out to be a most engaging narrator, well-versed in literature, art and politics, steeped in Enlightenment values and adept with the footnotes, but also, refreshingly, not above trying to bite the fingers of an irritating literary critic at a swanky soiree. A perfect little yapping 20th-century absurdity, Andrew has called him elsewhere. But before we got on to math, I wanted to hear a bit more about Andrew's own canine history. Almost before I remember any humans in our house when growing up, I remember the dogs. There was always some disgruntled and slightly depressed-looking little puppy in the corner of the kitchen. It seemed to look at us as if it understood more about human behaviour and the chaos of human relations than the humans themselves did. I loved our dogs, and they did seem wise to me. I think I forged a special relationship. At least I imagined I had a special relationship with them. There was all these, always these dogs who seemed to me to be watching us all the time. I grew up in quite a chaotic house, and the dogs seemed to me the arbiters of reasonable behaviour. At least that's the look they had about them. At what point did you become aware of the literary potential of the dog? When, at what point did you think you could actually do something with a dog as the narrator of a novel? In 1999, when I went to 
the sale at Christie's in New York of Marilyn Monroe's personal belongings. That was a famous sale where small items, lipsticks and curlers and personal books were sold next to the famous dress that she wore while singing Happy Birthday to President Kennedy at Madison Square Gardens. At that sale, um, I noticed they were selling six little Polaroids of a dog called Marth, which I knew about. It was a present given by Frank Sinatra to Marilyn Monroe at Christmas 1960. And that uh, set of Polaroids was sold for $222,000, which seemed to me a signal moment in contemporary art, that these little pictures of a dog, because they were attached to a great famous 20th century icon, could be so valuable. And just as I noticed that, the voice of the dog began to percolate in my head. I had a little yapping going on. And it felt a very personal sound. It connected to voices in my childhood and to a kind of comic, absurdist little inquiring voice that had been there in my head for many years. And it sort of formed itself very quickly. It took me 10 years to write the book, but I certainly had the literary character of the dog right from the beginning when I first heard those little um, perceptions coming in my head in the voice of Marth. They were very literary, and I think that was because I always loved talking animals in literature. I loved them in Cervantes and Jonathan Swift and George Orwell and Virginia Woolf. You know, the talking animals are the animals that were given the power of thought and reflection, if not conversation. They meant such a lot to me, so I think there was just a little forging in my head very early on, and I realised that there was potential here for something quite sparkling if I could get it right. At what point did you realise that there was a chance to make an aesthetic dog, and how important was that? Well, I think that's a combination of the vanity of the author meets um, a sort of sensibility where I wanted to drag the business of my own childhood and beginnings into the dog's head, coupled with the fact that there was rumours in Hollywood when I started researching the book that the dog had actually come from the Sussex farmhouse, lived in by Virginia Woolf's sister, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant, the painters, and that they had got it from Scotland. So that set off a train of thought and association. I mean, we work by implication and association as novelists, very naturally. It doesn't feel like hard work to find these correspondences. They just, um, they're a bit like DNA. They're, they're either there with you or not. In this case, uh, it seemed to me uh, just to emerge very naturally that, that Math was the Scottish dog. I wanted to give him some of those uh, features which were so familiar to me from my first days in life. And, uh, and when, when the reality suggested that that might have in fact been the case, then it just it was a no-brainer from then on. I just was absolutely determined to have him be Scotty. And he's, he's retained some, some little idiomatic linguistic terms, hasn't he? He describes cats as lurking with fleas and, and giving people their character, which is nice little, nice little things embedded in his discourse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always been important to me, the language thing. I mean, of course, a great exemplar of talking animals in literature was, of course, my friend of my childhood, uh, friend of many people's childhoods in Scotland, and adulthood, Robert Burns, uh, the great poet Robert Burns, who is, I suppose, the national writer in Scotland, has a wonderful uh, group of poems, uh, the most famous of which is called The Twa Dogs, which is a conversation between two dogs in a poem uh, discussing the oppressiveness of the local landlords, a very political poem, a satire, really, sending up human vanity and human corruption, but in the voices of animals, and that was in my head, and I loved the way in that poem that those dogs spoke so Scottishly about um, the predicament that they found themselves in. Very human concerns voiced in a new way through the tone um, and the language of these animals. 
makes to, makes to them, I could hear a certain um, sort of intellectual inquiry that my dog had in, in my imagining, which was very Scottish. You know, it was a kind of enlightenment dog, a dog that was taken up with questions of reason and morality and ethics and all those questions which are primary subjects for philosophy. It's a philosophical dog from the beginning, and I like the idea that uh, Marlin's dog, of all the dogs, should be the one that was so taken up with the big questions of life because she found herself trapped in some of the big questions of life. So, again, it felt very natural to me that the dog should have that Scottish um, lilt and language. And what Math gives you is, is a, a wonderful vantage point, it seemed to me, not just a literal vantage point because he's done at ankle level, so he's very sensitive to the shoes and the brand of shoes that people are wearing. But also because he's he's observing, he's an extremely sensitive dog, and he's aware of people's character, how they're developing, particularly the, the character of Marilyn, what she's going through. But no one else, there's no other other than other an omniscient narrator who would have a very different kind of take on that could present that. So that there's one point in the book where Frank Sinatra is becoming aggressive, and Marilyn is, is physically squeezing Math's ribs, and that's an amazing kind of physical touch, which you know is actually registering the emotion in the scene in a way that, that no other narrative voice could do. I think that was um, such a big purpose for me, such a clear purpose, was to register the journey of Marilyn's consciousness via this dog. She claimed the dog was the best friend she ever had, and the only one that understood her. She said these things. You know, that Math was non-judgmental and a wonderful empathizer, a companion, something that she never found elsewhere in her life, in her confused parentage and her chaotic relationships with men. She, she never found a friend as, as close as Math. So he was a comforter as well. And that's it's manna from the gods for a novelist, the idea that there was this dog who witnessed everything and was the great comforter. And the idea that he might have like, intelligence beyond what we would normally accept as being reasonable, well, that's, uh, that, that, that's a great bonus to a novelist to, to be able to imagine that, I think. Readers are probably susceptible, I think, to, to fully imagined things. They'll go with you, by and large, if you do it well enough. You know, I, I trust my readers. They, they want to be enthralled. Their capacity for wonder is always much larger, uh, thank God. Than, than you might initially think. And I found it with this novel that readers have really come with me on what is, after all, a journey, a metaphysical journey into the relationship between two creatures, one of them a speaking, reasoning creature, that's the dog I'm talking about, <laughs> and the other one, a woman who was almost silenced by her circumstances, who was undervalued as, as a thinker and as a performer. So. Yeah, I was absolutely comfortable with the idea that um, you know, it was an opportunity to enter into new territory. Marilyn Monroe has, of course, generated many books and also been quite attractive to novelists, hasn't she? They've, they have attempted, I suppose, to, to try to get under her skin and explain what kind of woman she was, what was, what was going on there. I think that anybody who's genuinely interested in the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century particularly, couldn't not be interested in a figure like Marilyn Monroe and equally, a figure like Lee Harvey Oswald and John F. Kennedy, other figures from contemporary life would spring up too. People who somehow acted as lightning rods for a whole lot of public feeling, given that public feeling and public life has been so much a constituent central part of the late 20th century and early 21st century novel in English, we must be attentive to these people. I mean, Marilyn Monroe had 750 books written about her, and as you mentioned, 
quite a number of them fictional titles. And that's for a good reason, is that she has come to represent something very essential and very mythic in our culture. This little lost girl who came from a very ordinary background to international fame and then to disaster represents something very archetypal in our culture. And we haven't done with her yet any more than we've done with any of the great mythic Greek figures. She's as pertinent in the culture as Peter Pan. It just won't go away. There have been hundreds, perhaps thousands now, of separate translations, adaptations, versions, productions of Peter Pan. And yet it has such cultural and psychological resonance, that story, that it will always exist so long as human experience exists, I think. And Marilyn's become like that. She's become a mythic archetype. While I was writing this book, I sometimes thought, um, much as Don DeLillo suggested in one of his novels, that perhaps um, there would be departments of Elvis studies at all the universities with people trying to understand the nature of the 20th century popular culture. I wondered if all novelists at some point in their careers wouldn't have to pass through the portals of Marlon Monroe's story if they were interested in fictionality and the power of invention. Of course they wouldn't, but that was a guide. But I mean, from my point of view, I wanted to pause, given that she had been associated with my own sense of life in growing up and I'd been interested in it as a child and so on. It seemed to me natural to want to animate her story in a fresh way. I wanted to ask you about that. It's maybe a difficult question or a difficult reconstruction, but I, w I wanted to know a bit about how your Marilyn actually came together. What were the things that composed that imagining of Marilyn? And in some senses, were you sort of contesting or challenging other Marilyns? Because there are so many different Marilyns, aren't there? And, and your Marilyn is is an aspirational Marilyn. She wants to exist in a realm of ideas and not just be appearance. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the genuine motivating factors for me when I set out to write this book was to rescue this archetype from the busy, rather leaden, hysterical interest in conspiracy theory and murders and... Um, these sort of disaster, misery, memoir-type interests in her um, had flooded in and overtaken the subject, I think. And we got away from that sort of optimistic, laughing, brilliant comedian that Marlon also was. She did have a very sad life, and I'm sure conspiracies surrounded in one form or another, but not in the way that people, I think, have over-imagined them. Um, there was this, this very ambitious woman who just wanted to improve in her life. She wanted to grow as an actress. She wanted to be associated with good ideas and strong performances and, and art. She wanted to live as an artist. And people kept sticking her back in her box and telling her she was a cheesecake, dumb blonde, and so on. That effort of hers to escape from, from all of those definitions, I wanted to take into the body of the book. You know, this is really set from 1960 to 62, the last two years of her life, when that effort was the big final push for her. You know, she'd been with Arthur Miller, married to arguably at the time the most famous playwright in America, next to Tennessee Williams, and, he, you know, that had failed, and her bid for a sort of respectability had sort of failed, and she was, she was still struggling to be the person she wanted to be. That's central stuff for fiction, you know. Of course, she was born in 1926, so there had been all these years before the novel even starts, um, and I didn't want to go into all that. I didn't want to try and do a panoramic view of this, Woman, but it was always the dog's point of view, the documented existence in her life that Christmas, and it's really uh, a first-person narrative very much 
in the do- through the dog's eyes, you know. You're right to point out that there has been so much interest in her, and I think for me, I wanted to rescue her in quite a modest way, just to bring her back to her best self. And that's what happens, especially to women who have been written about too much. They begin to become pure victim or a pure dramatic object with the stress on object. And I wanted to um, save her from that a little bit. Well, I think the, the, the phrase on maths in the whole book that I thought was the most poetic and the most wonderful was towards the end he says, it is though the world has bleached her with attention. And that seemed to me what math and what you through math were doing was rescuing from that sort of, and the bleaching that I imagined was like a sort of oversaturated photograph where the colour had all gone and it was just, it was just sort of turning to, to light and no, no definition. Yes, I think the part, part of the uh, issue for math, as I narrated, is that by the end, part of his sadness, part of the heartbreak for the little dog is that he realised that he's probably bleached her too, that she was sort of eminently available for bleaching and that we've all bleached her that we have no choice. She bleached herself. She made herself so available for the projection of other people's fantasies and ideas about her that she became as blank as a, as, as a cinema screen. She became whited out. The dog, as well as the author, that's to say me, probably would take as much responsibility for that as anybody. There is no reaching the flesh and blood Marlin anymore. She died. And in some senses was dying long before the event, but she lost herself fundamentally in all that need for attention. And perhaps there is a, a, a moral lesson in, in there for us all. After all, we live in the age of celebrity where there are children now presenting themselves, making themselves available, as I've said, for bleaching and for whiting out, and consider that to be a sort of goal. Well, it was a, it was a dark destination for Marley. These are questions which you've you've thought about before in fiction and in personality. It's obviously something that you are fascinated by and, and return to. Idealism and the notion of self-invention has been in my work since the beginning. The idea of lostness is right there in my first book, The Missing. The idea that you can lose yourself in the bid to become something else or can be forced into another place by terrible circumstances. These have always moved me. Uh, I think they're kind of keynote feelings of certainly of my period. I'm over 40 now, and I started writing about these subjects in my mid-20s. And they're as compelling to me now as they were then. 20 years into a, a career isn't that far. I still feel as if I'm beginning in many ways. I'm just setting out my, my stall. But these, I can see now, when I look at those individual discrete books, that there's a consistency between them. Not that I intended it that way or anything, but, but they're all interested in erasure and the way that life can rub people out. And that people can, part of the human creativity that can exist, whether it be in a socialist house builder, such as the man dying in the 18th floor in our fathers, or the little girl in personality who's trying to get off that island and get into London weekend television to become a star, or whether it's the man who's never faced up to the cost of his illusions, priest, and be near me, or now, with this latest book, The Life of the Thing is a Mark the Dog, where we have a little dog witnessing the disappearance of a brilliant woman in front of his eyes and he's trying and panting and scampering after her, trying to make her persist to, to keep her alive. 
having allowed yourself the artistic license of having a talking dog, you decided to go way beyond that. So you've got talking animals of all sorts, and they've all got their own personalities and their take on the, the human events. Yeah, that came early, actually, uh, in the drafts of the book, where I realised that that ladybird crawling across the table in the kitchen at Charleston, where Math begins his life, also has speech. They seem to me consistent with the... Um, the comedy and the fun of the book that all the animals would speak, and they would speak with a greater articulacy and self-knowledge than any of the humans. When we put Frank Sinatra next to a group of Russian bed bugs at the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, you know you're in for a bit of a giggle. Of course, these Russian bed bugs are full of Dostoevsky and a sense of life's ruination and uselessness. And there's Frank, you know, sort of self-defeatingly shouting and bawling at everybody. You know, that's, that's what fiction can do. You know, if you're going to be in the business of writing novels, then... And from time to time, and uh, this will probably be a singular outing for me, I don't suppose I'll be writing many more books like Mark the Dog, but from time to time a novelist can marry reality to the really furthest extremes of the imagination and, and bring their style forward in that way. That's what we all want to do. I think it was Nabokov who once said that every book a writer produced is another chapter in the history of their style and their imagination, and Math will be a central one for me, I think. Andrew O'Hagan. The Life and Opinions of Math the Dog and of his friend Marilyn Monroe is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but you can find out more about both books by going to faber.co.uk. You can also hear the authors reading extracts from their work there. I hope you'll be able to join me again soon for the next Faber podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.